electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. And hi, everyone. Yeah, score another one for the bulls, we thought, except we're losing the gains today. This after the Fed dropped years of tradition on inflation targets this morning. What the market hears is lower rates for longer. The larger question is whether the whole thing will backfire and create asset bubbles. Maybe it has already. We'll discuss and dive into that, get the very latest on what's going on this afternoon with the sell-off. Speaking of the Fed, we're going to talk directly to Dallas Fed President Robert Kaplan, going to get his take on this major policy shift voting member this year. Plus, from the happiest place on earth to one full of political drama, TikTok CEO leaving the company just months after joining from Disney. What happened and how it will change TikTok's path to a deal with an unlikely New suitor today. We'll tell you all about that. Let's start with these markets, though. Bob Bassani is here with the latest action for us. Bob? Well, we were pretty strong in the middle of the day. In fact, the S&P at 3,500 very, very briefly, and we sort of lost steam in the last hour or so. Largely, semiconductors have been selling off some of the technology stocks, also selling off some of the big mega cap names uh, now uh, in the red for the day here. But we had two big stories today. One, that rapid test from Abbott. Hey, that's a big news for the reopening story. And you can see these travel and leisure stocks all reacting to that. There's a good sign. They're, they're optimistic on the reopening story. Live Nation and all the airlines, Carnival Marriott on the upside here. The other big news today, of course, the Powell speech. Stock traders generally believe this is positive for stocks for a couple of simple reasons. They've said low unemployment is not spurring inflation. The rates are going to stay lower for longer. And higher inflation without raising rates? Hey, not a bad idea here. And that means more money into the stock market. That's kind of the way stock traders are looking at this. Interestingly, the yield curve steepened a bit as that speech was going on here. Uh, Not sure how long that's going to continue, but that's been good for bank stocks today. All the big money center banks, as well as some of the regional banks, so J.P. Morgan, Wells Fargo, Zions, and the regional banks all on the upside. What I don't see today, any new highs. Another new high on the S&P and only 20 highs. Uh, uh, 20 S&P stocks are at new highs, including Lowe's and Home Depot, but they're on this list every single day. Where's the new highs? We've got to broaden this out a little bit if we really want to keep the market up here. Guys, back to you. All right, Bob, thank you. Uh, Bob Sani with the latest there. Jerome Powell scoring big with investors on the Fed's historic policy shift, just like Bob was saying. Now, that includes our own Jim Cramer. Jim saying this morning that, quote, Powell is on the side of the bulls and applauding the Fed for stepping aside to let the economy work its way back from the pandemic. But with stocks already hitting all-time highs, does the Fed risk fueling a market bubble with this message? For more, let's bring in James McDonald. He's CEO of Hercules Investments. And Chris Zaccarelli is Chief Investment Officer for the Independent Advisor Alliance. Welcome to both of you. Chris, I know you tend to feel this way with your, you know, the concern um, that you share with many investors about whether the stock market reflects reality. So what do you make of the Fed's move today? 
Well, I think what the Fed put into practice is something that they've already been uh, working under, basically the idea that an inflation target should be symmetric. They shouldn't just be targeting 2% on the high end. They're looking for 2% over the, over the long run. And so all, what that does is, just as Bob said, is allows, allows the Fed to ha- see um, inflation rise a little bit higher than 2% and keep rates low. And I, I think for the most part, part of the reason why we're seeing stock market at all-time highs is that belief that rates are going to be lower for longer and the Fed is going to be a lot slower to to really end this party. And so that's the situation we find ourselves in today. Right. But would you then warn people, say, hey, look, this is getting frothy. This is getting bubbly. you got to kind of resist it or, or not? Well, I think it's a little bit more nuanced. I mean, I don't think the market as a whole is a bubble, but clearly parts of the market are in bubble territory. It really depends uh, as you go beneath the surface. You really need to look within individual stocks, within individual sectors. It's true that the five largest stocks in the S&P 500 make up about 23.9% of the index. But on the other hand, they also contribute about 16.1% of the operating earnings. So to some extent, the largest companies deserve to be that large. Now, whether or not the multiple you're paying for that may be a little bit high at this point remains to be seen. But in general, General, the market as a whole is not necessarily in bubble territory yet. All right, James, let me bring you in now. Speaking of individual stocks, you do have several recommendations here. You say you have five pre-election investments for growth investors. Let me first start by asking why the focus on pre-election? It's a good question. We have to understand that there are going to be catalysts that drive stocks higher and or lower. And in this period of uncertainty with COVID, as well as monetary policy, the next big catalyst for our country will be the election, particularly if the Democrats take back the White House. Uh, we can expect about an 11 to 14 percent uh, increase on taxes of corporate profits, bringing the S&P's uh, price uh, to earnings ratio down uh, about 5 percent. Um, and so these are the type of the risks that we look at when we're assessing stocks. And, and back to the comment uh, about what the Fed's policy is, I think it's important that we listen to the nuances of the language. Uh, they said they're going to let inflation run moderately over 2%, but they also said there's no formal mathematical formula. They're going to, quote, play it by ear. Yeah. And if you listen to what Wall Street is saying, uh, uh, Deloitte came out with a survey today that said 84% of Fortune 500 CFOs, these are the people that manage the finances of America's largest companies, 84% say now that the stock market is overvalued, according to the Deloitte survey, versus the previous quarter, only 55% said that. Only 2% said the market is undervalued. And when the Fed listens, they listen to businesses and their surveys. Uh, If they listen to consumers, the Consumer uh, Confidence Survey said today the number fell to 84.8 from 91.7 in July. So we're seeing a negative trend. uh, And I think these inputs leading to the election uh, uh, force us to be cautious. Yeah, and I I think what you're saying, too, is that the Fed may be a little bit less gung-ho about letting the economy run hot if their corporate uh, targets are telling them that the market's overvalued and if they didn't really put a number or more specifics on that inflation kind of strategy now. So let's talk, I mean, your your growth names that you like right now include some familiar ones like Zoom Communications and DocuSign, uh, but also Datadog, Universal Display, Beyond Meat. No valuation concerns with this group? Absolutely not. If you look at growth trends, let's start with Beyond Meat. Uh, over 80% of the people who eat artificial meat are not vegetarians. Uh, it's a healthier item to eat. Restaurants are picking it up. There's a lot of growth there. 
Uh, we all want to be healthy as we get smarter and use technology to inform us of how our bodies are performing. So Beyond Meat's got a lot of upside taking over uh, an industry that's always been around. And as much as I love my steak, <laughs> I don't love my pot belly. And so Beyond Meat is going to take, uh, and then in terms of data screens, everything that we look at is either going to be on a laptop, on a smartphone, uh, or a large digital display at home on TV. Uh, that display company is going to own that segment. Uh, and then when we talk about the cloud, the cloud is going to continue to get more sophisticated and get more complicated. Yeah. Uh, and those companies that can manage data and manage information for people that have their entire business on the cloud, these are all extremely high growth areas, uh, and we like them. Yeah, and Chris, I think Salesforce showed us this week with its earnings that you can be a 20-year-old company and have your top line growing almost 30% because of some of these tailwinds. So uh, we've heard where James would specifically be putting money to work. What about you? Yeah, so for us, you know, we see all those moves within the cloud and we see semiconductors and we agree that that's the future. That's where things are headed. However, you know, looking at the valuations, I think it is important to look for other areas of the market that may participate. So if you look within home builders, I think we were talking about a couple of those names prior to, prior to our segment, as well as looking within biotech, as well as, as looking within uh, software and services. And I think if you look in those three industry groups, you can find a lot of names that have a lot of growth that had trends coming into this pandemic that are likely to persist through the pandemic and beyond. And those are the types of themes that we want to get behind, those types of trends that we think are not necessarily based on the election per se or yeah. based on a pan the pandemic ending. We want something that's a, that's a longer-term secular trend. And so for us, valuation does matter, and we want to be part of that growth where we can get it at a reasonable price. GARP, we'll leave it there. Thank you both today. Chris Zaccarelli, James McDonald, been a pleasure. Well, speaking of the Fed, their announcements today could have long-lasting effects for both inflation and for the labor market. In fact, we're joined now by a member of the Fed to talk about this historic shift. Let's welcome in CNBC senior economics reporter Steve Leisman and here for a first on CNBC interview, Dallas Fed President Robert Kaplan. Steve. Thanks, Kelly. Uh, President Kaplan, thanks for joining us. I'm not sure if you knew you would sign up for this, but you're the first guy out of the box to comment on this new policy that came out this morning. So, Getting right to it. T tell us yep. what this idea of averaging inflation means for uh, markets, for investors, and for the economy. How does it work in practice? So it, it, here's what it means to me. It, first of all, I think it's simply it's an articulation of, uh, of my reaction function uh, that I've been following for the last few years. And what do I mean by that? Historically, when we got to levels that approach full employment, the Fed would want to preempt. It would anticipate inflation. It would want to preempt it, and it would start raising rates. Uh, up until the pandemic, we let, uh, we let the economy run hotter. We let the unemployment rate get lower. And we were more, I was more hesitant, and we were more hesitant to preempt or anticipate inflation. And we had the luxury of doing that because inflation was more muted. T to me, this is not a formula. It's not a commitment. It's not an arith It's not. We're not going to use an arithmetic average. It simply means to me, as as we get down to lower levels of unemployment, um, I, I'm going to be willing to. I'm going to look at a whole range of circumstances and factors. And if I think inflation is likely to be muted, I'm willing to take a little bit more risk and have a little more tolerance for a modest overshoot. And I say modest overshoot, but, but that's really been my reaction function for the last mm -hmm. two or three years. But President Kaplan, um, 
you're the ones who use the word average. And, and at the same time, you and, and uh, Chair Powell said it's not a formula. So the word average begets markets are going to start thinking about a formula. So I have to ask yep. you, if it runs at two and a half for a year or three percent for a year, does that mean you would sit tight? Uh, it'll depend on the circumstances. I wouldn't. Uh, for me, it, the, the, the new framework says we're likely to let inflation run moderately above. What does moderate mean to me? Probably means to me two and a quarter, two and a half. You've heard me say before over the last few years that our inflation target was symmetric. I don't want to run persistently below, and I don't want to run persistently above. And I, for me, at least, that hasn't changed. And so I know the mar people may try to come up with arithmetic averages, but, but I won't be following that. And I will, it, this, this framework also is not a substitute for my judgment. I'll be looking at a whole range of factors when I make these judgments in the future. And it's not a commitment, again, on what we're going to do. You already addressed this a little bit, but I think it's worth underscoring uh, a lot of talk about average inflation, but also a pretty important change in the long run policy statement about unemployment. You said you're going to address shortfalls in unemployment, not deviations. And I believe the change in wording has to do with the idea that you're much more concerned about unemployment essentially running too high than you are running too low. How big a change is that for monetary policy? So it's. It's a change, uh, and it, it, to me, it reflects a degree of humility at the Fed. If you'd asked me, I joined, the, I joined the Fed five years ago, and if you asked me and my team what was full employment, we might have said four and a half, four and three quarters percent. Uh, and, and obviously, that, that turned out in hindsight to be high. We, we were able to pull in a whole range of underrepresented groups, uh, lower income groups, blacks, Hispanics women with high school education and less. And so what this reflects is uh, that, that uh, maybe our views on full employment are more imprecise than we might have thought, and that we, we may have the capacity to run hotter than we have in the past, and we're at least open to that. So that's, that's the reason for shortfalls versus deviations. And it also highlights the importance of getting underrepresented groups into the workforce and the long-term benefits that can have on income inequality, wealth inequality, and having a stronger economy with a stronger labor force. President Kaplan, it's Kelly here. If you'll indulge me in just a quick comment Hi, and a yes, question. Sir. The comment sure. is a lot of folks just aren't that worried you're actually going to hit 2% inflation, let alone two and a quarter, two and a half, or three. So the market reaction is somewhat muted to that. My question, yeah. I should say the bond market reaction, my question is about the stock market and whether you're concerned that it is acting frothy. Yes. Yeah, so let me make a comment first on your comment <laughs> in that uh, for the last 10 years, inflation has been muted. It's surprised a lot of people that we haven't had more inflation. I've been vocal that I think technology, technology-enabled disruption is one of the reasons for that. Having said that, in this job, I think it's wise to go forward, not assuming the future is going to look like the past. Uh, you could have changes in, in the dollar. You could have other structural changes in the economy, globalization, regulation. And so I'm going forward being alert uh, that inflation... Uh, it's not going to surprise us on the upside this year or next year, but as we get closer to full employment, we need to be open to that possibility. So I'll set that aside. 
On the markets, uh, the only comment I'll make is uh, obviously PEs are much higher. Uh, the Fed has taken substantial and extraordinary action, not just uh, with low rates, but also uh, uh, buying treasuries, mortgage-backed securities, and these 13-3 programs, which have backstopped basically corporate bond markets and other markets. And I do believe that it's wise for us to emphasize these 13-3 programs will sunset. Right now, they have an expiration at 12:31. I think it's important that we articulate to the markets, don't rely on these programs being here indefinitely. They need to sunset and markets need to operate without this degree of Fed intervention. And, and I, I, I am cognizant of, uh, of what's happening with risk assets. And I think we need, what we've done up to now has been appropriate, but I think showing some restraint from here and emphasizing the limits of monetary policy and the fact some of this will, will lapse is very important to emphasize today. You know, Pre President Kaplan, I want to follow up on just that uh, great question from Kelly. What possible reason could there be for the Federal Reserve right now to be buying Apple corporate bonds and the bonds of some of these stocks that are doing so well? And at the same time, the Main Street lending program is struggling so much. Uh, $600 million only in loans, $600 billion capacity on that. Um, are you creating winners and losers in this economy? When you say restraint, is it time for the Fed to dial back on this corporate security program where the Fed... Uh, is helping out these large companies so much now? Um, I think going back to March, to your point, we, we, we implemented a number of these programs because there was real dysfunction across financial markets, including the corporate bond market. And so just by announcing some of these programs, we caused many of these risk markets to rally and credit spreads to, to uh, narrow and allowed companies to go out and issue. As a result of that, though, there were some also some uh, uh, maybe unintended consequences that I think are part of, of doing what we did. So again, I think it's very critical to say uh, we did what we needed to do because to try to, we needed to stabilize market function, but these programs are gonna lapse and they're gonna go away and we are going to phase out of these markets. And I think that's critical. On Main Street, I think the dilemma on Main Street is this, it's a lending program uh, and many companies that could have borrowed from banks early in the pandemic already did. And those that still need to borrow from banks, many of them have weaker credits, and we still have credit constraints uh, on, on the Main Street program. And, and we're, we're a lender, not a spender. And so I think the, one of the criticisms of Main Street has been, why don't we take more risks? Why don't we ease up the terms? even though we'll take more losses. And, and I think our response and my response would be, it's really not a Fed decision that has to be made by Congress and the Treasury, but that's the reason Main Street has gotten less take up. It's, it's a good loan program, but it, you do have to meet certain credit standards. And, um, and, and right now, many of those who met those standards already got loans from their banks. And those that didn't borrow are probably lesser credits and would involve more credit risk. And that's the challenge on Main Street. All right. Well, Robert I will thank Kaplan. you both. Yeah, very much for joining us. Steve, really appreciate it. And uh, Robert Kaplan, thank you so much for your time as well and for further articulating your thoughts.
on what the Fed announced today. Be sure to tune in all day tomorrow for more coverage of the Jackson Hole Economic Symposium. We're going to hear from Fed Presidents Loretta Mester, Patrick Harker, and James Bullard, all right here on CNBC. We've got some breaking news out of the White House. Now let's get to Elon Moy with those details. Elon? Kelly, President Trump is set to announce a new $750 million deal with Abbott Labs to purchase $150 million rapid COVID tests. Now, this announcement, according to NBC, is scheduled to happen this evening when he makes his speech to the RNC. Earlier reporting by Politico had said that these tests would be prioritized for nursing homes, schools, and high-risk areas. In a statement, a White House spokesperson said that this is a major development and that the Trump administration is proud to partner with Abbott Labs to make this purchase possible to help the American people get kids back into school and get Americans back to work. Kelly, again, a new $750 million deal with Abbott Labs to purchase $150 million, $150 million COVID rapid tests. Back over to you. Yeah, a lot of hope for those. The Dow, I should mention, is back up 150 points. Uh, Elon, thank you very much. Elon Moy with the latest from Washington. Coming up, a historic moment in the sports world as NBA players walk out and refuse to play in protest over Jacob Blake's shooting. We've got the latest as new reports emerge about play resuming. Plus, more drama at TikTok. The CEO leaving after just a few months on the job. What happened and what does it mean as tech giants and now Walmart battle to buy the social giant? And Amazon extends its reach even further into wearables and groceries. This is the stock. It's all-time highs. It's up 85% this year. We've got the details coming up on The Exchange. This is The Exchange on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with P. Jim, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back. Shares of DraftKings reversed higher. They're trying to hang on to those gains now on this report that NBA players have decided to resume playing maybe as soon as this weekend. Eric Chemi is here with the very latest for us. Eric? Hey, Kelly, that's right. According to those latest reports, NBA players just finished their meeting about an hour, hour and a half ago with an understanding that they would resume the playoffs most likely this weekend. That news comes after an emotional meeting last night where several stars suggested they simply end the season immediately. Today's schedule games will definitely not happen as players and owners will continue to meet throughout the day. The players are working with league officials to see how their voices can still be heard and how they can further advance their social justice causes despite the fact that they are stuck inside that Orlando bubble. Many players have been concerned that the games are a distraction from broader societal goals, but other players have said continuing to play gives them their biggest platform to affect change. Kelly, back to you. Yeah, that's an interesting point, Eric. Stay right there. The NBA has reached an agreement with its players, but what does the path forward look like for professional sports overall? Let's ask Jabari Young about that as well. He's CNBC.com sports business reporter. 
Jabari, it's good to have you. So, yeah, it wasn't just the NBA last night. We saw this across a number of sports. So are there conversations right now where each one of them have to figure out what to do now? You know, I think it's just, you know, you're stuck in a moment. You know, everybody's looking for answers right now where, you know, when the emotions are such, you know, are very high, uh, not only throughout sports, but throughout the country. And you're not going to find too many of that uh, are united. You know, you're going to in the NBA, for instance, you have 450 players. You know, Eric mentioned about the tensions being high last night. Well, why were they high? Because the emotions are high. Uh, and so you're not finding very clear answers with that. I think players are, are, are in this moment. Uh, at leagues are, are joining them, owners, sponsors, and I think everybody's trying to just navigate what the future looks like. We obviously know nobody likes the future uh, to look like what the current present is. You know, nobody wants to talk about, you know, leagues protesting and, and, and protesting uh, because of police brutality and, and protesting because, you know, black communities continue to be victimized by social and, and, and economic problems uh, for over 400 years. You know, so it's beyond just what the path forward looks like in sports. What does our country look like? Yeah. Uh, and, and I think that's what players are trying to bring awareness to, not only what the economics look like, but what do, what do we look like as people? I got, I, I got a daughter, you know, yeah. a daughter. And it hurt me to see that video of Jacob Blake. I had no idea his kids was in the car, but immediately when I found out, I started crying. What does the path forward look like with that? Yeah, no, I thought about that, too. Can you imagine, you know, your kids are in the car? I, I was going to ask, because according to The Athletic, they say that players want to find, or the NBA wants to find, maybe both, want to find new and improved ways to make social justice statements. They already have Black Lives Matter on the courts. They have their different kind of causes on the back of the jerseys. So it's interesting, Jabari, because it seems like they have used a lot of the available real estate for this already. What more might they do? Or is there also a degree to which here the players just don't want to be in that bubble playing basketball? It just are their hearts just elsewhere? I mean, do you think it's it's definitely you know a done deal that the season moves forward? You know, I, I think you'll have some players that want to play, continue to play, and and then some players might not want to. Um, you know, listen, you know, Dwight Howard and Kyrie Irving were adamant about this before the bubble started. Uh, they they feared that this would happen, but. You know, ultimately, the players have a responsibility because to keep it on the economics, you know, you also have to realize, you know, owners are one thing. And I think they're looking for influence from the owners from a political standpoint. The NBA owners and NBA, I'm not going to sit up here and say that uh, they did a bad job throughout this whole process. You know, the players and, and the owners, they, they work on a partnership. They've done a good job of, you know, creating the awareness. $300 million for the NBA Foundation. The Brooklyn Nets donating $50 million themselves. You see the economic stimulus, but I think that players are looking for more influence hmm. from owners from political levels to get things like arrests made in certain cases. And I think if they see more of that, then I feel like they, they you can move forward. But I think that that's what they're looking for, more yeah. influence, more political ties. The same way Meek Mill uh, was helped by Michael Rubin and Robert Kraft, imagine if more people were helped. Uh, from owners from that level, from all communities. And I think if you get more of that, then you start to see real change. Yeah, well, we'll be speaking with a, an owner next hour. In fact, Eric, before we go, though, just to ask about the financials at stake here, what would happen if the the rest of the playoffs didn't happen, if other sports have delays that affect their season? I mean, are, how much flexibility is there in these TV contracts at a year in which this was always already in flux because of the pandemic? Yeah, so it depends sport to sport, but this is one of the points that came up in last night's meeting where the players were told by union officials, hey, you guys could cancel the rest of the season, but then look to a 25 to 30 percent reduction in your salary next year because we wouldn't have made all that money from the playoffs and we had COVID, and we had the China thing. So the NBA's had a real problematic year when it comes to revenues. You look at all these other sports, there was no Olympics. That affects a lot of things. Mm -hmm. There's no fans in these stadiums. So sport by sport, depending on where your levers are, you might really need this money. And for a lot of players and teams and owners, hey, the money can really help us 
with whatever our goals are out, outside the stadium. But, you know, we need that platform. We need that money to do both things. Yeah, good point. Thank you both, guys. Appreciate it. Eric Chemi and Jabari Young. And as I mentioned, we're going to be speaking with Houston Rockets owner Tillman Fertitta about the path forward for the NBA next hour on Power Lunch. Still ahead here, riding even higher. For Goldman Sachs, a 150% gain in Peloton this year isn't enough. Why they say another big rally is on the way. Plus, Hurricane Laura making landfall overnight with thousands in her path. Companies like Lowe's and AT&T have been planning and positioning. We're monitoring what's working as the storm progresses. Stay with us. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn 2% cash rewards on what you want, like season tickets to watch your favorite team, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like paying for parking. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash active cash. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production. And they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. Welcome back to The Exchange. A couple of strong tailwinds for the market today. That Abbott Labs quick test uh, certainly has a lot of investors excited, especially the reopening stocks. Uh, that's why we're seeing, as you look across the sectors, financials off, still in the leadership position today. Again, a little bit of a rotation and a reopening feel to this market. But we have not been able to hang on to the highs, even after the Fed this morning laid out a policy shift, implying they're going to stay dovish on inflation for longer than normal. Uh, those gains that we saw this morning have moderated somewhat. Still, the Dow is up about 205 points this hour. The S&P up about six, and the Nasdaq is down by 44. Uh, let's turn to Sue Herrera now for our CNBC News update. Hi, Sue. Hello, Kelly. Hello, everyone. Here's what's happening at this hour. We now have some excerpts from President Trump's acceptance speech at the White House tonight. He will call Joe Biden's agenda, quote, one of the most extreme set of proposals ever put forward by a major party nominee, end quote. Meantime, the Biden campaign is planning to counter with a two-minute ad on the four major broadcast networks depicting him as energetic and a candidate that plans to address COVID and the economy. This is U.S. COVID-19 deaths are now above 180,000. That is according to the latest count from Johns Hopkins. And we now know that the smoke seen near Lake Charles is from a chlorine chemical fire at a biolab facility as Laura, now well inland, is downgraded to a tropical storm. Still lots of damage and lots of cleanup ahead. Kelly, you're up to date. I'll send it back to you. Yikes. That's pretty terrifying footage. Sue, thank you. Mm -hmm. Speaking of which, preparing for a major hurricane at any time is a difficult task. Preparing for one during a pandemic as you can imagine, even more challenging. Contessa Brewer is here now with a closer look at how companies have tried to prepare and how effective those plans have been. Contessa? Well, Kelly, a lot of time and effort has been spent on disaster planning and then trying to factor in pandemic precautions. But look, there are things you simply cannot plan for, like the chemical fire we're seeing now burning in Westlake, Louisiana. 
Governor John Bell Edwards is asking people nearby to shelter in place. Caesars is monitoring that fire because it's so close to its Isle of Capri Casino in Lake Charles. And it's dealing with hurricane damage to its hotel and its riverboat, which became unmoored during the storm. It came to rest along the I-10 bridge. CEO Tom Reed tells me they'll need a tugboat to haul it back. And DOT inspectors are on their way now to check out any damage to the bridge. Now, Hurricane Laura is testing not just how effective the disaster plans are, but how organizations are adapting to the challenges uh, they'll know that their plans were effective if coronavirus infections stay low while they're responding to these disasters. So, for instance, the Red Cross says more than 10,000 people were given emergency shelter last night, some in hotels, some in carefully managed facilities. Walmart, Home Depot are operating remote command centers, and Lowe's has deployed 2,400 trucks pre-positioned and filled with supplies they're going to need for the cleanup. AT&T tells me it has its team in place to tackle damage to communications infrastructure ASAP. So all of this testing how those emergency preparedness plans were put into place, Kelly. But it's interesting that this storm contest has such a long tail. Look, you saw this as a Category 2 hurricane over 100 miles. It stayed a Category 1 hurricane, um, meaning that over land we saw a hurricane for as much as eight hours. And then that tail as it's now a tropical storm and moving on. Uh, FM Global, a leading commercial property insurer, says that raises the risk of damage to all these businesses houses and other things because of river flooding yeah. as well. We'll keep our eye on that. Which is exactly how we saw previous storms be so damaging. All right, Contessa, thanks. Contessa Brewer for us. Coming up, Goldman Sachs says Peloton can ride even higher. Amazon gets into the watch business and what the teaming up of Walmart and Microsoft could mean for TikTok. Microsoft at an all-time high today. There it is, up more than 2%. We're back in a couple. Welcome back. Let's catch you up on several stories that should be on your radar today. It's time for our super rapid version of Rapid Fire today. It's so much news. Here to break down the headlines, Sierra Jabosa, Michael Santoli, and Julia Borston. And first up, it has been a drama-filled day for TikTok. It all began with CEO Kevin Meyer quitting. He stepped down less than three months after taking the job from Disney. Sources say he was excluded from negotiations with Microsoft and Oracle, which you can understand frustrate anybody. Uh, and then an unlikely suitor emerged this morning with Walmart announcing it's teaming up with Microsoft in a bid for the social media company. That leaves three in play for TikTok. Julia, where do we start? I mean, Walmart and Microsoft teaming up, really? Well, look, I think what all this points to, Kelly, is the fact that a deal is going to come very soon. And it was a source close to the situation that told me that one of Kevin Mayer's frustrations was the idea that he is a deal maker. He made so many valuable deals for Disney when he was there, including the acquisition of the entertainment assets from 20th Century Fox. And then you have a situation where you had Zhang Ming, who's the CEO of ByteDance, leading those negotiations with Microsoft. And you had Bill Ford at General uh, Atlantic leading those negotiations with Oracle. So you have a situation where someone who is known for their ability to do deals, not able to lead those deal talks. And I think it, it in a way makes sense, Kelly, that he would want to step back and make sure he's not part of whatever this next 
uh, businesses yeah. for TikTok, which sounds like it could be very complicated. I mean, Mike, he could end up running a division of Walmart yeah. at this point. So he's probably like, yeah, no, I'm good. Yeah, or some kind of joint venture between two massive, you know, Dow 30 companies. Right. It is fascinating, though, with the forced sale de facto being brokered by the U.S. government uh, and companies seeing different things in TikTok. Clearly, Walmart seeing it as a bit of a portal to younger consumers and maybe e-commerce and advertising plays. And Microsoft seeing it as you know, lots of data to run through its cloud, among other things. So uh, it is an interesting uh, thing and not done yet. Deirdre, quick last word on this. I like to think about what does Amazon think of all of this, right? We thought, what did Facebook think when it was Microsoft doing the bidding? And if it's a Walmart-Microsoft deal, is that a distraction for Walmart? Or is it an edge in their competition against Amazon on the e-commerce media entertainment front? So yeah. it'll certainly be interesting how this complicated saga they don't, plays out they don't, for Walmart a lot of the biggest companies in the world. Listen, you guys know I love Walmart, okay, super Walmart, but they do not have a great track record. The voodoo thing, Bonobos, I, I, if they emerge here with TikTok, I mean, I, I would have a lot more questions, but we'll save those for next time. Let's talk about Goldman Sachs doubling down on Peloton today, saying expectations for the stock are far too low. They raised their price target to a street high of $96, Michael, saying the trend isn't simply pull-forward demand, but rather an acceleration and steepening of the adoption curve. Peloton shares higher today. Of course, Mike, stocks only go up. Yep. They're up 3.5%. Yeah, exactly. They've quadrupled from their low of 17 The call here is there's going to be a blowout September quarter based on the indications of new volume. And Goldman is essentially saying that the, all it does is accelerate. It hastens the moment when they get toward their, you know, kind of, their share, their rightful share of the total addressable market. I don't know. It's still being valued much more like a software network type play than like hardware. Cost of goods sold is still half of their revenue, so they mm -hmm. still have to make these bikes and sell them. But uh, momentum is absolutely there. The question is, uh, does it turn out to be, you know, just a fad and a shutdown play? Right. Deirdre, for now, it doesn't seem to matter. My producer, the lovely Christina Yates, just uh, got a Peloton, has to wait till November for it to arrive. But others, like my savvy sister-in-law, have found a cheaper bike imitation to use with a Peloton app for 12 bucks a month instead of 40 Kelly, I will be your third category then. I do not own a single piece of Peloton equipment but I do use the app on a very, very regular basis. So to Mike's point, is it a hardware or a software play? For me, it is purely software. I use a beaten up old treadmill to do their <laughs> boot camps and strength training, but I do not need the equipment. So I'm a subscriber, but to, to another point, I also subscribe to a number of, you know, virtual fitness apps. But, this, but that's how you stay in shape. I'm so impressed. I'm thinking, like, if I got on the treadmill, and anyway, uh, let's move on. Speaking of sports, <laughs> talk about two of college sports' biggest conferences, which are getting blowback for canceling their fall football seasons. If more D1 schools follow suit, industry experts say the cancellation of college football could, whoa, 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 be a good thing for the bottom line of the media companies. Julia, talk me through this. It's all because of a drop in ratings last season only nine games had more than seven million viewers 13 games were able to reach that mark in 2014 are they i can't believe this would really be a good thing for these companies well i think the argument is that it would be a good thing if they weren't going to be able to generate sufficient advertising revenue to produce these games because remember kelly it's a lot more expensive to produce anything now than it was before because you have to have all those extra layers of security and safety measures around COVID. So that's the question, how much more those additional costs could have outweighed perhaps lower revenue because of ratings. Although I would say 
I would guess that ratings would be through the roof because people are so starved for content right now, um, live sports content right now. Although I guess the question is whether they would be competing with all the other things that people are hungry to watch, including the return of the NFL, which we're, we're still waiting for. Right. So a lot of questions there, but I think it is worth noting it's just a lot more expensive to produce anything. Mike, are you in the so which camp do you think investors should be in here? The camp that says you know, buy these stocks at a uniquely depressed valuation because sports are coming back or no, there's been a sea change. Everyone's on Netflix now or the equivalent. They're on the Peloton yeah. app and it's never going to be what it once was. I mean, I think that you're talking about the traditional media stocks. Yeah. It, it would seem to me that they are they're pretty well discounted for the long term challenge. So I don't know that necessarily this has changed the story um, in, in that sense. I don't know how important college football in any case would be and I do recognize the idea that it's more local appeal than national appeal and on a you know on a kind of return on investment basis maybe not that great but you know it goes back to the days when we were spreading these games across the entire week when they were filling ESPN two through eight you know with marginal games those days are over. <laughs> Still, they have every bowl game imaginable, uh, but it vindicates the NFL's strategy of going national. We've known that for a while. Uh, finally, what do groceries and wearables have in common? Amazon is making a splash in both today, opening the first location of another new grocery store chain. This one's called Fresh and also going head to head with Apple and Fitbit by introducing a wristband for health and fitness called Halo. It's a subscription service. It, the app tracks motion, heart rate, sleep, skin temperature and your emotional state. Stock at an all time high today. Deirdre, we're just pointing out that they seem to have no qualms about extending their reach into your emotional health, for instance, or into the grocery store aisles at a time when they're already under antitrust scrutiny. Yeah, what it tells you uh, that not that anyone needed to be told this, Bezos doesn't sleep, Amazon never stops. Of course, <laughs> the company slogan, it's always day one. It tells you a lot about where their future ambitions lie. Grocery, we've known that for a long time, but they've really kind of struggled in this area, perhaps now with the pandemic. Online grocery delivery is seeing a huge leg up. A physical grocery chain is a way to further tap into that. And of course, we've known that Amazon has major ambitions in healthcare. What's interesting with this watch or wearable, it's not a watch, it doesn't even have a face, <laughs> is that it doesn't connect to Alexa or Prime. So uh, perhaps here Amazon is trying to say, listen, as we go into health, we're going to keep your data completely separate because we know that there's already lots of concerns yeah. about privacy. So perhaps getting ahead of those concerns. With Good us. luck with that message, Michael. A parting thought on the stock? Uh, well, first of all, I think the experimentation impulse at Amazon is still there. That, to me, is the only takeaway. They're willing to fail with things like this as they did with phones. And, and that's probably right exactly what investors hope and want for. You know, and we have the same philosophy here. We, so we try, but then sometimes it's so good. Uh, Deirdre Bosa, Michael Santoli, and Julia Borson, thank you all very, very much today. We appreciate it. Coming up, imagine stepping into the CEO role during a pandemic and in an industry that's been devastated by it. That's what the first 100 days have looked like for United CEO Scott Kirby. The stock's up 58% since he took over. We have a closer look at his short and tumultuous tenure right after this. Welcome back to The Exchange. United Airlines CEO Scott Kirby has been on the job for 100 days. And what a 100 days it has been with the pandemic devastating the sector and major carriers down 45 percent or more this year. For a closer look at some of the tough calls he's already had to make, let's bring in our Phil LeBeau. Phil? Kelly, what's the cardinal rule of leadership? Do not waste a crisis. And that's certainly been the case for Scott Kirby and United Airlines. Take a look at the stock since he became CEO on May 20th. It is up 58 percent. 
Now, that's not great, but it's certainly better than where they were in April and May. And when you look at Scott Kirby's leadership, a couple of things stand out. First of all, they've been aggressive in terms of cost cutting, uh, moving the fleet to a, a lower utilization. There was the mileage plus, debt, mileage plus debt offer where they raised $5 billion. That's the signature move of his tenure, and that's helped stabilize liquidity. And in this industry, cash is king. And look where United stands right now only trailing Southwest in terms of liquidity and cash on hand at $16.7 billion. They're going to need it because right now the passenger levels are not returning the way the industry was hoping for, the way basically everybody was hoping for in terms of what's going to happen. Right now we're looking at six straight days, six straight days where the week-on-week -week passenger levels have dropped. Nonetheless, when you take a look at the airline stocks, they are all up today. Kelly, the bottom line is this. People are hopeful for some kind of good news when it comes to COVID-19, either testing or vaccine, and that's why the stocks are up today on the uh, Abbott News. Yeah, but the industry that's really in favor right now, Phil, electric vehicles. We had another IPO today, a Chinese EV maker. The shares yep. are up 60%. Yeah, well, that's X-Pang, and that's basically a bet on the Chinese EV market. It's the largest in the world right now. It will easily be the largest for decades to come, and the government is pushing people to buy electric vehicles. If you believe that that market will take off and that XPeng will be a major player there, that's why you're buying this stock. All right, Phil, thank you very much. Phil LeBeau. Coming up, my next guest says the Fed is being forced to tackle things it doesn't have the tools to address, and it's causing mission creep at the central bank. He tells us why next. Welcome back. A major shift at the Fed today with Chair Powell announcing average inflation targeting, which allows, <laughs> excuse me, inflation to run higher than its goal of 2%. But some are calling for the Fed to expand its focus. Take a look at this headline in the Wall Street Journal. Mission creep at the Fed. The central bank has been asked to tackle climate change, trade wars, economic and racial inequality, things it may not have the tools to address. Joining me now is the author of this piece and the longtime Fed watcher, Greg Ipp, chief economics commentator at the Wall Street Journal. Greg, it's great to have you here. And do you think there's already a little bit of mission creep at play in the Fed's announcement today? Uh, a little bit, but not really. Today's announcement was more about how do we better achieve the goals we already have for ourselves, which is full employment and inflation. Those have been in the Federal Reserve Act since the 1970s. But what I think you see going on at the same time is that there's a lot of pressure to expand beyond those two fairly sort of like simple uh, statements of purpose to other things. You know, since the global financial crisis, they've been expected to uh, look for financial stability problems. Uh, you have heard in the last couple of years pressure on them to take climate change into their uh, analysis. And since uh, just in the last few months, there was a lot of pressure from Democrats to now explicitly target the gap between black and white unemployment rates. So you're seeing a lot of people asking the Fed to do a lot more than just their traditional things to try and target things that they just don't have good tools for addressing. You know, it, it, sort of as the saying goes, you cannot serve two masters. Uh, in some ways, financial stability, for example, they might say, well, stock prices are too high, but if we tighten, then we won't achieve our other goals. I mean, I wonder if the takeaway here is simply that the Fed is going to be more dovish for, the, for years ahead than anything that we've seen in the last cycle. 
I think it's probably true, Kelly. And in fact, it somewhat makes redundant, I think, some of the some of the demands that it change its mandate. So, for example, we know that in recessions, the black unemployment rate rises much more than the white unemployment rate. And when the economy is really doing well, like it was in February, that gap becomes very narrow. So in some sense, what Powell actually said uh, today and in the new statement of purposes, simply by by pursuing their existing goal of full employment, they're actually indirectly also serving that other goal of eliminating that gap. They don't talk about what would happen if they started to get an inflation problem and that gap still exists. That's mm. where the conflict arises. Today, for now, though, I think the Fed has very uh, shrewdly sort of like threaded that needle in that sense that they make it clear that at least for the, you know, for, the, for many years to come, there won't be any sort of problem there because inflation just is not a risk. In fact, if anything, they should be pushing to push it to get it higher. Right. So let me finally ask you about the inflation issue. And we talked to Robert Kaplan at the beginning of the hour, and he hinted that maybe the lower dollar deglobalization, even more regulation could all lead to higher inflation than in the future than anything we've seen. But the markets don't really buy that. They just don't really believe that anything like sustained 2% and above inflation is coming. Do you believe the Fed could really achieve that here? It's going to be a little while. I hear what President Kaplan is saying, but I think all those things will just produce temporary bump-ups in the inflation rate. I think that over time, we know that the most powerful determinants of inflation are both the degree of slack in the economy, there's a lot of it with an unemployment rate around 10%, and expectations. And if you look at the bond market, if you look at surveys, people are not expecting high inflation, they're expecting low inflation. But he could be right, and I think that's why the Fed needs to maintain flexibility to respond if it must. And the way I read this new statement of principles from the Fed is they do retain that flexibility. Yeah. So final question, Greg, when people start saying even now that the market's frothy and we're in danger of bubbles, what do you think the Fed would do? about? Do you think they would do anything? It doesn't sound to me like they're in the business of leaning against that for a while. No, no. And I think that they've probably wisely said that, as you were saying, Kelly, uh, you can't have like sort of two masters at the same time. We simply cannot um, worry about how what these low interest rates are doing to, to in terms of creating stock market bubbles, because if we were to do that, we would end up, you know, compromising our much more important goal, which is getting the unemployment rate down and inflation up. Uh, unfortunately, that financial stability uh, issue will have to be looked after by others. And, yeah. you know, that's kind of what Congress is for. <laughs> All right. Congress. Uh, Greg, thanks so much. It's always good to see you. We appreciate All it. All right. Thank you, Kelly. Greg of the Wall Street Journal. That does it on the exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn on what you want, like trying out that new workout class, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like a foam roller for your sore muscles. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are, with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash active cash.